0: So I'm happy to be here, and one of the, one of the traditions has been that I like to kick off the seasons. So I normally give the first talk in September, and I normally give the first talk in January as we begin the new year. And last year I was uh, I didn't do it because I was exhausted. Last year I I was working with an NFL team, and uh, I was just you know being in that. Um, military energy kind of wore me out. Um, but anyway, I'm happy to be here, and the thing I love about this kickoff is what? Because it's a new year. It's a new beginning. And, and I'm, I'm happy that so many people are here, and it's interesting because they say, are you going to give a talk? I said, yeah, and I just gave them the title this morning. So I, I usually don't like to give a title because I have no idea what I'm going to talk about And even though I gave you a title, I still don't know (laughs) what I'm going to talk about, because it's really more about where you are and what feels like uh, what needs to be um, attended to in the moment. And so this idea of spiritual practice is really important because that's what we're doing here. And I know Narayan wrote a newsletter, and in that letter she was talking about spiritual life first. And... For me that's that's easy, but for most people I'm not sure if that's the case. I know before I was in recovery, I, I didn't really talk about spiritual stuff or spirituality. And as a matter of fact, I've been teaching for for over thirty some odd years and there was a long period of time where I couldn't use words like spirituality. People would get upset. And I was referred to it as people's secret weapon because they didn't want people to know that they were meditating. So we've come a long way in terms of of what's possible. And so for me, it's when you think about what is a spiritual practice, how many people have a spiritual practice? How many people don't know if they have a spiritual practice? <laughs> okay, so that's good. So let's talk about what, what a spiritual practice is. And so for me... When I got in, so I I celebrated 35 years of of sobriety in in July. So I I guess I'm in the 36th year. And the interesting thing was when I got into recovery, first it took me a long time to get into recovery. And as I talk about it in my book, The Mindful Athlete, the only reason why I got recovery because uh, it's what I call the AOF method of motivation. AOF means ass on fire. And so people had been telling me when I was in college, people said, you should meditate. And I used to tell them, you should rotate. Uh, <laughs> and give me a brew and I'm fine. <laughs> I, you know, I don't need that lame stuff. Get out of here with that. And it wasn't until I got to a point where, where I didn't have anywhere else to turn. And that's the gift of desperation, and as I call it. My ass was on fire enough and I was listening. And so I decided to do this thing. Um, called recovery. And so when I got into recovery, it was interesting because I got it right away that it's a spiritual program. It's a spiritual program. And so when I got into 12 steps, they talked about the physical, the mental, and the emotional. And of course, since then, I've added, I mean, physical, uh, uh, physical, mental, and spiritual. I added emotional at some point just, just because... Because I like the idea of a whole being a whole person with a mind, body, heart, and soul, and or spirit, however you want to um, phrase it. And uh, how many of you folks ever heard of Edgar Casey, the sleeping prophet? Well, this is a guy, Edgar Casey, was a sleeping prophet, and he said the spirit is the life, the mind is the builder, and the physical is the result. And so, basically, what he's saying is what I learned in recovery, which is if you don't connect to higher power and if you're not connecting to higher consciousness, then, then you're not going to be able... I'm not going to be able to to not take a drink or a drug or or misbehave in other ways. And so I knew right, right, right away that I had to connect to higher power and actually the 11th step in recovery is sought through prayer and meditation to improve conscious contact with a higher power and, you know, asking for knowledge of his will and the power to carry that out his or her will. So the thing I loved about 12-step recoveries and I would argue that that's probably one of the the biggest spiritual movements because I learned right away that I had to, I could come up with my own definition of what that meant. And I had I had a wise um, sponsor and he said, you know, you don't have to know what it is, you just need to know that you ain't it. And that's all I had to do and know it wasn't me. Right, And, you know, he would say things like, and if you don't believe there's a higher power, why don't you speed? And when they pull you over, you, they will show you that there's a higher power. <laughs> so just this idea of getting out of the physical or metaphysical or just realizing that there's an energy, there's a spirit that we can connect to, as an energy font that we can connect to, connect us to power. And so as as I, for me, so for me, realizing that it was a spiritual program because of that and I connected to power, which meant that my best thinking couldn't keep me from, from doing what I was doing, getting high. So I had to act like I didn't know anything and sit up front, take the cotton out of my ears, put it in my mouth, and act like I didn't know anything. Just sat there and just listen. So we should talk about the how of the program, honesty, open mindedness and willingness. And so so I I embraced it and because I embraced it, and I started understanding that I could do things that I couldn't do before, and so I had to go into a detox. And I went into the detox, and when I got out of the, out of the, the detox, I was I had a lot of money, and and I got a, the obsession to use came over me. And this is before I knew how to meditate or any of that stuff. But I had gone to AA meetings, but I continued to drink, you know. Um, and when I went into the stall in the, lock, in, the, in the bathroom, I started reciting the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And I kept repeating it like a mantra, and the obsession was removed. So that was probably my first spiritual experience that I can remember. Of course, I went to church and all of that, and it's amazing how all those phrases keep coming back now, but in the day, I couldn't wait to not go to church. And so, because I didn't feel that was spiritual, that was religious. And and so when I had that spiritual awakening, and what happened was after I got in recovery, I had chronic pain. So in the HMO is was at, they, they told me about this stress management uh, class, and Joan Boricinco was teaching it. So she introduced me to meditation and yoga and tai chi and all of the others. But the main thing I got out of that was the mind and body are connected. They're not separate. And so then that took off and that opened me up to the possibility of of getting on this path uh, and studying Buddhism and studying uh, according, I don't even call it Buddhism, it's the uh, the teachings of the Buddha, but I'm not restricted to that because I study a lot. And so over the last 35 and a half years, I've averaged over a book a week or whatever. I just study things. So all the religions, I, I just study them. And they all have this idea of of spirituality or connecting to something greater than yourself. And what I'm distinguishing now is usually what it's about is connecting to something greater than yourself but also realizing that this self-centeredness, this I, me, and mine, this is what I call, in this tradition we call it no-self. But I refer to it as the illusion of separateness. That we are all connected. And that when... When in, I don't know what it was, 2013. Whenever they had the the marathon bombing, just to, just to cite a case, when the explosion went off, people were running towards the explosion, not away. And that's an instance where we get beyond this, the illusion of separateness, and we just know we have to go and support. And of course, when there's with the fires and the hurricanes people do that and then 9 eleven obviously people run into the building so every once in a while we f- we we get in touch with that illusion of separateness and the interesting thing about about a spiritual practice is by having a spiritual practice we seem to be able to get beyond that illusion of of separateness more and we and i I speak for myself and I start to be able to see things in a way that keeps me engaged and keeps me hopeful and optimistic. And so in, in this practice, and one of the things I did in the book, is because I, I understand that our basic dilemma is a lack of power or not understanding. Because one of the things that happens being a human being is we have this experience of powerlessness and aloneness. When I mean, sometimes when things in the environment happen, or if we grow up in a dysfunctional homes, we have been traumatized. and. And for me, I, you know, there was no safety nowhere. And it wasn't until I started to understand that in spite of that, that there was a way I could relate to myself where I can connect to power and I can have the courage to change, the courage to transform, the courage to go beyond my, my condition, even my family situation. And so this idea of spirituality, this idea of hope and optimism, and it's interesting because research is c- catching up with it because... It's called the broaden and build theory. Is that when we're in we're in a positive mind state, our cognitive functioning is enhanced. So our ability to think and see and to go beyond you know the tunnel vision we actually and that's where the the solutions are. And, and I've learned that the best stress reducer is is wisdom or understanding myself and understanding know myself, but also understanding how the universe works, so I can align myself with how things seem to work. And so this is inside work. So that's another thing about spiritual work. It's an inside job. No one can do it for you. And so here we come in and we talk about, about the practices and, and, and the sitting and the meditating. And the meditating, don't get me wrong, I've done a lot of sitting. I lived here for six years. Um, I've done a, long, a lot of long retreats and everything. That's only one aspect of it. So the mental training is one aspect, but another aspect of it is, is is what we call right view, or how do I cultivate this thing called a positive genius so when my mind is funky and in recovery we used to call it stinking thinking, and we knew that if you had HALT, H-A-L-T, hungry, angry, lonely, and tired, you're going to be susceptible to picking up or misbehaving. And so I had to, in my own, because of my recovery, I had to be clear about what's my mind, what's my attitude like? And I had to start to understand what we call right view, which is, which is a mind without greed, without hatred, without confusion. Or a positive way of saying that is a generous mind, a kind mind, um, and seeking wisdom, seeking to understand. If so when doubt arises... I don't have to stay in doubt until it paralyzes me. I can say, okay, so what do I need to learn? What questions do I need to ask? So being, being a seeker, being on a spiritual path, has more to do with not just sitting and being in silence, but also taking responsibility for, like I said before, the spirit is the life, the mind is the builder, the physical is the result. So we have this capacity as being human beings, and I would say we're spiritual beings having a human experience. We have the capacity. Whatever we hold in mind becomes our reality. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I take responsibility for that, but it's true. And I keep, coming, I keep mentioning this philosopher's name is Dr. Dre. He said, I got my mind on money and money on my mind. <laughs> That's a meditation. That's what you're creating. So what's your mind on? So part of the spiritual practice is understanding what we're holding in mind and what we are creating. And so for me, when I was, before I got in recovery, I was always thinking about how to get high, or how to get drunk, or how to um, come up with excuses for being irresponsible, whether it was work, love, and play. And then I realized, no, in, in this process, I can focus on what I want to create, how I want to be, uh, who I want to be in a way where I'm living in love instead of fear. And so when I talked about the five spiritual powers, We talk about those, that's another way of connecting to power, higher power. Is what is faith and trust. And that goes back to what what Einstein talked about when he said that the most important question we have to ask is, is this a friendly universe or unfriendly? And I'll cut to the chase, but if it's unfriendly, then we're going to use all our resources to either deny, destroy, disrupt anything that's a threat. And if we see the the universe as friendly and lawful, then we we can use what we're doing here, using our resources, our spiritual practice, to align ourselves with how things are, and to live in a way where we're harmonious with ourselves and with others. But it's an inside job; it's the inner game. So, just like Dr. Dre, what are our thoughts on? What are we meditating on? What are we focused on? How are we behaving? And do we know from right view that there's cause and effect, that there's suffering and there's the end of suffering? And so for me, a lot of my spiritual practice is just noticing ways during the day that I suffer and how I can end that suffering, how I can let go of that. And it's interesting because around here we talk about good friends. So we have good friends, which is another way of teachers or people who have been on the path. And so we have good friends, and then we have suitable conversations, like what we're having now. And then what's, why do we do that? We have the suitable conversations, why? So that we can understand the teachings and then apply them to what we're doing. So a simple practice that, I, that I've been doing for years, besides all of, all of the practices here, is Edgar like Casey talks about attunement and application. Very simple. What is attunement? Attunement is, he says, the first thing we have to do is establish a spiritual ideal. Why? Because a spiritual ideal will be something we can attune to, but it will also be something we can measure ourselves with. So for me, my spiritual ideal is love. And so what I I do, what I have done, and what I continue to do is meditate on love and let feel love and, and radiate love and while I'm doing my meditation, I'm radiating love. And let's say somebody that I'm having some challenges with pops up in my mind while I'm doing the loving meditation. Well, that's an opportunity to have some forgiveness or at least tolerate that person and say, just like me, that person wants to be happy, but they're a little ignorant. Or you know, so and 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 of course, can I do that right away? No, that's, that's a practice. That's why we call it a practice. First thing I learned in twelve step recovery was that I, they told me to pray for my ex-wife and I wanted to smack the person that told me that. I said, she should be praying for me. And so so that's, that's the, the idea, is understanding how are we going to relate to our experience where we can be more connected to ourselves. And this spiritual practice is about that. It's about understanding there's, there's you know, we develop faith and, faith and trust, but we have to have wisdom or insight to balance that. And if we have too much insight, like most of us have, We become cynical. And if you're cynical, it's not happening. It's like, yeah, why bother? I know how this is going to turn out. And you know something? That's exactly how it turns out. Because we program ourselves and we're training ourselves to to do that. I'll give you an example. How many people are having a conversation with somebody they're having a challenge with, and they're not here? (laughs) (laughs) Right? That is what you're creating. So we have to understand we create with the word. The Bible says that and, and Buddha says that. It's like right effort is the idea. How do we, how do we have a wholesome mind state, a, a mind that's the opposite of, of hatred but love? And when hatred arises, how do we acknowledge it and abandon it? And then how do we prevent it from arising in the first place? And so during the day, if you think about it, my spiritual practice is from the time I wake up, the time I go to sleep, I have wisdom and 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 mindfulness operating, understanding that I have this ability to step back and observe my experience, self-awareness. We can do that. We can observe ourselves seeing things. And even when I was when I was a drug addict, I still had that. I still had that ability. I had the situation where I'm I'm getting high and the needle breaks off in my arm. And I'm sitting there and I'm watching it. I'm watching it and I tied my arm up and went to the hospital and they dug dug out the needle and all that stuff. But you know, it's we have that ability, and it's only when our asses are on fire where we have this alertness and this willingness to look and say, okay, we can be there, but we can see what's happening. And by seeing what's happening, there's a wisdom that comes out of that, out of that silence, out of that eye of the hurricane, what I would call it. And so we we have to develop this ability to observe our experience. Uh, uncritically or mindfully where we're observing it without judging it. And our normal observation is we observe it, but we're pushing it away or we're pointing towards us and we're not present. We're not creating space to let the situation speak to us in its own language. Do you understand what I'm saying? You get what I'm saying? And so these practices are not just sitting, but also thinking about what we call right intention. Knowing if, you're, if your intention is to harm that's probably not going to turn out right. So if you have anger, what we call the hindrances, frustration, resentment, any of that stuff, those mind states, that view causes uh, thoughts and intentions that are unwholesome. And then that speech, right speech, right action, right livelihood, then it goes and then it keeps going. So it's a really simple practice which took me decades to figure out that if my mind is right, everything else is right. So if I can start off with right, right view or understanding that my mind is funky and in recovery, I knew that. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired, I'm in trouble. I need to change my mind. I need to connect with somebody or or, or figure out how to change the energy. And so now, years later, because my consciousness uh, has, has risen, at that level, getting high is not an option. Being disrespectful most of the time is not an option on a good day. (laughs) So in some parts it worked really well. Some parts I still got a lot of work to do. Like I feel like my in martial arts we say the dojo is a place of enlightenment. My enlightenment is going to occur in my car when I'm driving, <laughs> or at home, <laughs> one or the other. Those are my two challenges. All the other stuff, sometimes I can do, be okay with it, but the fact that I know it and I have a spiritual practice, I can work on it. I can learn, I can practice, and then keep working on it. But as I said, we are good friends, so we sit, we talk about it. How do we do this? How did you do it? What, what, it, what, it, what am I not seeing? Because I have blind spots. So I need people around me who could say, "Yo, man, you know, this is what's happening. Do you see this?" And I have to trust them enough to say, "Okay, all right, let me look at that." And so this whole idea of a spiritual practice is just that. And so let me, let me just um, think about it because I'm talking, right? So what would happen? Or how open would you be if I asked you to to talk to the person next to you and just just ask them their name and, and you tell them their name and while they at, tell you their name you don't say anything you just listen. Would you be willing to try that just to see what I'm talking about? So let's do that. The Person next to you, just take turns. One person say hi, introduce yourself. So let's say A is the one first one to say their name, and then after they do it, then the other person says your name in silence. You know, listen, right? Okay. So what was that like? Come on, listen is more. Uh, what did you think? How many people had trepidation when I said that? How many people did it anyway with the trepidation? Trepidation, right? That's a spiritual practice. You didn't feel like doing it but you did it anyway. And what what did that feel like? Afterwards, how do you feel now that you've done that? I'm talking to you, sir. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah, do we have mics? I really I really don't have that much to say, but um uh, yeah, the awareness that I can be nervous. So how do you feel now? More relaxed. Interesting. Would you have thought that would be the case if you would have known beforehand? Well, I guess I've been privileged enough to do a lot of these little exercises. Gotcha. Uh, okay. So uh, some awareness with that, but still it's amazing how mm-hmm. even with that, experience, still felt nervous when you first mentioned it. Yeah. Now, how many of you are a little irritated because I broke protocol? (laughs) See what I mean? That's an attachment. That causes suffering. That's a good one, huh? That's a choice right there. You can say, oh, okay, let me roll with this. Or say, wait a minute. He did that. He's not supposed to do that. I wasn't ready for it. I need to ruminate before I do exercise like that. right?" Anybody else? How about you, Miss? How did you, How was your experience? Can you give it a mic? Um, yeah, I've done it a lot, too, but I also always get, like, a little nervous beforehand, but it's always fine when you do it. And you didn't die, right? No. <laughs> Anybody else would like to share? Yes. Yes. I had every intention of being you know exhaling and being really present when i met my my the person next to me and i just totally got really tense mm-hmm. and so now i have regret <laughs> yes but you have a regret so let's talk about that a little bit so why do you think you have a regret because you should know better right you should have done it better should have done it better yes yeah, so so see how see how this the 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 critic within Kind of has an impact when in, in actuality, only thing that happened was you felt uncomfortable or whatever, but you made it a problem. You understand what I'm saying? You people here, how we suffer? Because is, there's no space between stimulus and response, it's a reactivity, it's our conditioning. So, what we can do is see that, have a little compassion for ourselves, and say, okay, yeah, now I'm making myself wrong, and I could do that. Or I could say, you know something, this is a learning process and can I step back and notice how I'd probably do that more often than not, right? How I'm judging myself and feeling like I need to know the answer before you tell me the question. You all notice that when you talk to somebody, you're trying to figure out what your response is going to be instead of just listening and trusting that if you really are present and listen, then the response you give them is going to be it's going to be more than adequate it's going be, it's going to, and the person's going to feel connected and so all day long we're doing similar things we're having a conversation with somebody that's not there or we're beating ourselves up or making somebody else wrong and and and, and if we can see that and just notice that there's suffering happening there and the buddha teaches suffering and the end of suffering so when we get attached because we, you know, I'm a good yogi, so, you know, I'm supposed to have the right answer. And that's all BS. It's like, you know, it's it's like life. life. Life creeps up on you, and the idea is, okay, can I just look at that, learn from it, reflect on it, and say, next time, I would do it this way. And if I look at it as a journey, as something, as a lesson, without making me or the other person wrong, now I can have a little joy and a little satisfaction with the fact that I can change my life. It is on me that there's all these opportunities for practice when we're not sitting and we're not alone. Because it's like the joke I heard that monk was, uh, two monks or uh, one monk was, I guess they was meditating in the cave for a long time and on the way down the hill they got into a fight. So what does that say? It says, you know, it's okay. Some of us can be okay when we're alone. But people are complicated, including us. And then we get in a conversation, or maybe the person says something we don't like, and then there's irritation, or they remind us of somebody because it's associative thinking. So the whole idea is just to understand that there's tremendous opportunities for practice if we're willing to just look at it and reflect on: Okay, was that helpful? Was that not helpful? What was my mind? What mind was I uh, using when I was observing my experience? Right. And if we have this mind like, uh oh, I gotta be good, and you know, you're coming from a place of of um, fear, let's say fear, because I like to look at it, keep it really simple. You either on a cellular level, we're either in survival mode or growth mode. Can't be in both. So if you're in survival mode, then that means there's some kind of fear based or or not knowing and the uncertainty gets us into that that fight or flight or freeze. And there's no space between stimulus and response. And we need space between stimulus and response so that we have the, the, the space to create or to, or to change or to observe what we're doing. And when we do that, we actually slow things down. And then we can just want to say something and then say no. How many people have done that where you, you, you caught yourself wanting to say something and you knew better and you just pulled it back? And that's when we start talking about restraint. Being able I want to do something like I wanted to smack that person that told me to pray for my wife, but I didn't, my ex wife. I didn't, but I wanted to. <laughs> but I was committed to, like, okay, not harming, or, you know, this person's supposed to help me. And, and just listening, but the, it, it took that humility of just listening and not acting like I know everything. You understand what I'm saying? And you get that. And and why is the anxiety there? Because to the degree that we have freedom, to the degree that that we have potential, that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is anxiety, not knowing, uncertainty. So some of us, even when we stick up for ourselves, it doesn't feel right. Because it's new. And this is this is what it means to be a human. We're gonna have anxiety. And all of these things are going to rise, and can we be with it without reacting to it and getting lost in it? Does that make sense? And this is what Kierkegaard, the great existential philosopher, you know what he calls it? The alarming possibility of being able. That, 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 that this thing, from moment to moment, we're in what they call VUCA, V-U-C-A, things are volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. From moment to moment. We have no idea what's going to happen in the next moment. We can speculate, we, but we don't really know. But if we can be still and just, if we react to it, can we learn from that reaction? If we're in a space where we can just allow it to speak to us, where we're not reacting to it, we can learn a lot. But it's just simple things, like just from moment to moment, what kind of, what's my attitude like? Is it positive or is it negative? Am I feeling confident or not confident? Am I motivated am I not motivated? You understand what I'm saying? You get it? And so we have to start thinking about that and start seeing ourselves from moment to moment. We can do that. So let's say, I, I used to count, I think, I don't know how many thousand seconds there are, but there's a lot. But even if you can take one or two seconds a day where you stop and pause and say, you know, what what kind of mind am I observing my experience with? Is it is it greed, hatred, or... Uh, ignorance there or do I have an understanding of what it is and do I have some love or some compassion or some kindness that's there? Does that make sense? And so I, I don't want to talk a lot more about it but it's just this idea of these teachings here when you think about them they're there and it's part of one of the awakening factors is investigation of dhammas. So what the Buddha is saying is don't believe what I'm telling you check it out and see if it's true. So that you go into your own experience and see, and once you have the experience of it, that's a different level of of wisdom. So you can look at wisdom as information, as intellect and rational thinking, and then there's there's intuitive knowing and a direct experience. So when I had the direct experience in the bathroom of being able to uh, remove the obsession, that would be right effort, And then I say, okay, so how do I prevent it from coming up in the first place? And then I can notice, okay, when I start thinking, oh, I got money, and oh, you know, I can go over here and time out. No, don't go there. Time out. Don't go there. Focus on what you want. Focus on just being in the moment and saying, okay, I can do things differently. And so at some point, I need an aim or I need something that I'm interested in so that I can focus on that. Instead of just doing what I'm doing because it's a habit and I have no idea what's going on, because if you don't know where you're going, you could end up anywhere, and if you don't know who you are, you could end up being anybody. So, what do you think of that? Those two things—that's pretty interesting, huh? So, when I ask you, "Who are you being?" you—you you may not be able to tell me, but if you get into this process that we've been. Sharing here, and that is the idea of observing uncritical observation of your reactions to life. Your reactions will tell you exactly who you are being. And so when I see myself and, and when I react to somebody, if I can observe that and say, okay, so given how I reacted, how, how might I have been thinking and what was I, and I'm sure right, F, right, right view wasn't there, so what was I thinking, what was my attitude and what was my intention and it turns out most of the time I didn't have an intention that was automatic pilot it's just a a habit that I developed and so part of this process is looking at habits and seeing how the ones that don't work how can we change those and the ones that work how do we sustain those and, and maintain them and this sounds really simple right it's really simple, but it's something. And and if you're like me, and you need to be a recovering perfectionist, I don't ask you to do this all the time. Just take one thing, and I would say take one area of your life that's not so emotionally charged, and just practice. But the main thing is, even if you just sat and and just observe yourself, and and just you know, like loving kindness, like I radiated love, but we we have compassion practice. May I be safe, feel safe and protected. May I, be ha- may I be peaceful. And then when we start with ourselves, then we can radiate out to others. But for me, when I first came around here, it was challenging for me to, to do it for myself. I could do it for other people. So each person has to figure that out. But when we start to understand these practices, like even me being a teacher and, and, and giving this Dharma talk, that's an act of compassion. It's an act of compassion. Because for me, it's easier for me to do it for others than it is for myself. But once I start doing that for others, then I realize I and the other one. And if I'm doing it for them, I'm also doing it for myself. And so for me, because I don't want to be a hypocrite, I have to walk the talk. And so on some level, being a teacher protects me and helps me to, to push through things, not because of me, but because I can help somebody else. And I know in terms of morphogenic fields that once we do something, the possibility of it happening, again, is enhanced. So I'm not just doing it for me. I'm doing it for all beings. But because I want to free myself and then share that with other people, then all that I give comes back to me. So the best way to learn something is to teach it. And so, if we go and we talk to our partners or our, or our co-workers, and we talk about how we might be able to relate to each other and listen to each other wholeheartedly, that could be very healing. And that's why the Buddha talks about right speech, speech that is harmonious. And so, the other part of it is restraint—you know, not not um, not harming, or non—let's just say non-harming. Just leaving that, leaving it at that. To be able to be compassionate or have compassionate or to be loving or to be kind and generous. That's what they call performance. Performing these wholesome mind states and then they become habits. And so we talk a lot about the mental training. We don't talk enough about integrity or, or, or speaking with kind words. Having, um, having some generosity. I don't like the word sacrifice. Sacrifice is just another way of saying being generous. You all hear what I'm saying? So each of us has to figure that out. So, some words, sacrifice, will work for you. For me, it doesn't work. Work for me is being generous and being kind and being able to, to communicate this. So, I don't want to speak a lot more, but you get the gist of what I'm saying. And so, it'll be interesting to know what kind of practices you're interested in developing, or which practices you have, or any of the above but i like i like to open it up for q and a